I grew up in very, very difficult uh, circumstances. It was like a war zone. We just fought over everything. Imagine growing up without having running water, a fridge or a toilet, without knowing if you have enough food to eat tomorrow, without knowing if you or your loved ones will return safely home or be attacked by gangs. Simon Okello was born and raised in Kisumu slums in Kenya, and he has experienced all of this. Despite growing up at the margins, he managed to leave the slum. Today, he lives in the United States and works towards helping children in his hometown slums. Hello, this is Indre, and as every second Wednesday, the I Bounce Back podcast brings a new inspiring story. This is episode 9, Simon Okello, Dream Builder from Kisumu Slums. A lot of people, especially here in uh, Seattle, get surprised when they hear my story because, uh, you know, a lot of people from Africa uh, and Kenya particularly who are here, you know, they have like three different jobs, you know, what they're focusing on primarily is how to make money so that they have the things they did not have when they were living in Africa. Uh, and, they're, they're, you know, they're pursuing happiness in a, in a different way. For me, I'm pursuing happiness by, by transforming my community, by making sure that while I am here, I make connections that continue to make my community a better place for, uh, you know, young people that are growing up there. A lot of people are surprised. Uh, and also back in Kenya, a lot of people are surprised because I've been doing it for a long time. You know, over 13 years, I've just been focusing on the work. And many people, you know, who are not really committed to transforming their communities or they're not committed to the vision that they have, they do it for one or two years. You know, there are many NGOs that go to Africa. They're there for five years and they're tired, you know. But for me, I learned this from my mother. You know, my mother... In 1997, my mother started an orphanage home that served so many children when HIV AIDS was a big problem, similar to how coronavirus is a big problem right now. So, you know, I learned that when you serve other people, you're actually just serving yourself. When you make other people's lives better, you're making your own life better. Yeah, that's right. And uh, let's go back right now to the beginning of your story. It has started in one of the biggest slums in Kenya. Um, can you describe for us the environment that you grew up in? I grew up in the third largest city in Kenya, which is known as Kisumu. Um, I grew up in very, very difficult uh, circumstances, you know, uh, we never had running water. We never, you know, if you went to a tap in our house and turned the water on, maybe once a year around Christmas when we had the money to to pay it so that you know everything could look perfect. But even sometimes we would pay the bill and there's no water because of corruption. Uh, you know, we never had a, a toilet that you can flush. Uh, and, you know, it was a luxury towards. You know, when I was becoming older is when we installed it, but it was not 
you know, working as compared to toilets here that are flushed. You know, um, I had an older brother that was involved in gang activities and he died when I was uh, in my last year of high school. And so our neighborhood was very violent. You know, he he had been stabbed many times. You know, he had very many scars of, of, of stabbing and he, he had also violated other people many times. And I had also participated in those activities. But, you know, I had an opportunity to, to, to compare my brother's life of being violent and being involved in, in drugs and alcohol. Uh, and then I was looking at my mother's life of, you know, spending her own money in feeding children that had no parents. You know, especially HIV AIDS made children that were like 12 years old to become parents all of a sudden. And so roles in families were changing very quickly. And uh, from a young age, you know, when I was eight years old, I was already a salesman. I was distributing milk and bread in our neighborhood and then getting the commission and, you know, using that commission uh, for school. You know, uh, my mother was very, very entrepreneurial, despite the violent and uh, desolate environment that we grew up in. She was always finding creative ways of, of keeping us going and keeping us motivated and keeping us, um, uh, you know, involved in entrepreneurial activities that, you know, taught me how to run an organization from a young age, how to run a business from a young age. And this is why when I moved to uh, Seattle, Washington in the United States, it was not hard for me to make connections and, and build up One Vibe Africa outside of Kenya. So, so really that is, that is uh, what the environment that I grew up in looks like. You know, Even in my own body, I have so many scars from fights I had with people. You know, I was a boxer from a, a young age, too, for self-defense and to protect my sisters. I had many, many sisters. One of them was gang-raped by, by, you know, a group of gangsters. And we went to revenge and, we, uh, you know, I was beaten up very badly, you know. So my life was very, very complicated and very, very risky. And that is why... Uh, you know, when I'm alive now, I'm only 37 years and it feels like I'm an elder because many of my peers died long time ago. So I know that I'm very lucky to be alive. And that is why what I do with my time is very important. You've mentioned about your brother being involved in two uh, gang groups. How did you manage to stay away from it and how, or like leave those activities? Because I think it's very easy for family members to get automatically involved into these kind of groups and it's very hard to leave them. So there are two things that, there are three things that help me stay away from violence and, and gang, gang, gang life. One is my mother. You know, my mother was running an orphanage home and doing community service, and I lived in the same compound with her. 
so she was an influence on me because she would wake up at 4am in the morning you know and she would ask me to clean up uh, so that the kids that were in our own compound where she started an orphanage home would get food before they go to school so you know i had to help her uh, you know take care of all these other children that were now living with us uh, and also um i had mentioned earlier that she also taught me from a young age entrepreneurial skills so you know i was learning how to survive genuinely instead of stealing from people and things like that i tried you know i tried going out at night with my older brother and you know strangling people you you would you would strangle people and i would take the money from their pockets you know uh and you know we just liked fighting also in our neighborhood and and uh you know making it difficult for new visitors in the neighborhood unless they gave us a little money we would make their lives very difficult um so um you know my mother was a big influence uh that helped me navigate my life away from the violence and the drugs uh also music was another big influence you know uh i had a, a boyfriend to one of my sisters was so much into reggae music and he, he was uh distributing music in the community so sometimes he would give me his walkman and you tell me about some of the new reggae songs uh and then eventually i be, i began DJing you know distributing the music to other DJs and DJing in my hometown and eventually all around um, the country uh, and and even now I still organize big musical events I'm a musician myself and and still that is also a way for me to heal myself and stay sane The last thing is uh boxing you know I boxed for self defense and also boxed just to keep my mind sane and so this is another way that you know I was working out a lot in the morning and in the evening I was going for a run in the morning and in the evening so by the time people are going out to do crazy things I was too tired to participate I find it very beautiful that your mother inspired you so much to carry on what she started can you uh tell a little bit about how did she open the orphanage because it's really inspiring that she did that even in these difficult circumstances you were living in and basically she uh opened this orphanage in in your house yes yes my mother is uh, an amazing woman she is still one of the people i look up to uh, when i want inspiration uh, she was born in a very large family so my mother was married when she was still in primary school my father was, you know is 20 years older than my mother you know in africa sometime when a parent wants to appreciate somebody and they don't have the money they offer their daughter will you marry my daughter just as a sign of appreciation for the help you gave me so that is how my mother was married off when she was 16 years old she became the second wife in a polygamist marriage she she fought very hard and went back to high school 
and eventually went to uh, a medical training college and she started working at the local hospital in Kisumu, my hometown. And then, you know, while she was working at the hospital, she was also living in the slum. And so every day, because she was working in the hospital and also because she had a small roadside business for selling, you know, grains like maize and beans, people came to her for, for, to ask for help. You know, she was like a resource for people. If somebody did not have money and they, they had children and they needed food, she would give you some maize and beans and rice, and then you, you'd pay back at the end of the month. So people depended on her. And then her work at the hospital also made people dependent on her because a lot of the time if you go to hospitals uh, in, in Kenya, you know, you don't get the services that you need unless you know somebody there. So many people from the slum, uh, you know, always went to to the hospital and looked for my mom. Uh, even in the neighborhood, I remember a woman giving birth in our porch, in in the in the in in the in our house, right by the kitchen, you know, in the front porch, uh, because. She was going to give birth in the hospital, but there's no ambulance or transportation to get patients to the hospital from their houses. So if you can't afford a taxi, you know, you have to wait for public transportation. So there was a public transportation very near our house, but the bus was not there at the time. So the people, the public brought this woman to our house and asked my mom, you have to deliver her. And my mom has never delivered anybody, you know, she, she just did what she could to deliver this baby. So, so this kid, you know, growing up, I, I knew that baby and I knew the baby's story and it sticks, it stuck to me until now. And, you know, this is just one of the examples of why, you know, I think my mom is such a great human being. And your mother did not want you to rely on aid and charities, which is pretty common for people who live in slums. Why was she against that? Well, originally, uh, my mother was an entrepreneur. You know, you remember I was telling you by the time I was eight years old, I was already selling milk and bread in our neighborhood. These were things that my mother sold and she hired people with bicycles, you know, and I was one of the people with a bicycle to distribute it for her in the community. So she always found ways to create jobs for people and also to earn some money from it. But when the AIDS epidemic came to Africa, especially Kisumu, my hometown, uh, it, it really impacted the, the economy and the community in a way that, you know, my mother spent most of the money for her business in, in creating the orphanage home for the children. So she had to start relying on, on aid. And then we realized that we, we put ourselves in a cycle. You know, aid is a cycle that never ends because the aid organizations have created an industry that has to be fueled by donations and advertisements of how terrible uh, Africa is and how poor people are. Um, so we began creating small businesses to support the orphanage home. And eventually, in 2013, when my mom retired and I took over the management of the orphanage home, um, 
you know, I even increased the amount of uh, social venture and businesses that we were doing, you know, from film production to music production, event production, uh, to ensure that we don't rely on, um, you know, on donations and grants, but we, we still accept them, but we don't rely on them. And we are, our model is self-reliance by doing businesses that are needed in the community. Oh, that's amazing. You have mentioned that you started working from a very young age as a child. Was this money paid for your tuition fees? Because I think in many African countries, education is not free and you have to pay even for like primary school. Right. I helped my mom distribute milk and bread in our neighborhood. Uh, you know, my mom bought bicycles and then she hired people and gave them these bicycles. And then, you know, there are people who worked the whole day just riding bicycles and dropping milk and bread to small shops within the slum. So I did that every day before going to school. And on Saturdays, I did it the whole day. Um, and the money that came in for me, my mom kept it and she took me to a better school every year. You know, whenever I was showing improvement in myself and I was also showing improvement in school, she would take me to a better school. So even though I was coming from the slum, I went to some of the best schools in Isumu. Have you been bullied by other children because of your circumstances, because you were coming from a slum? Uh, you know, at, at growing up, I didn't even understand that anything like bullying existed because everything was just, it was like a war zone. You know, we just fought over everything. If somebody stepped on your shoes, you punch them. If somebody stole your ball, you go and steal their bicycle. So, you know, I never knew much about bullying until I went to high school. Um, so, so, you know, um, I didn't really think much about bullying until very late in my, in my life. But uh, I knew that we were privileged because even though we were living amongst very poor people, I knew that we were not as poor as some people. Um, and so I was always very aware of, of that position. And I, I helped people even as a child. I shared a lot of the things I, we had uh, because I knew that even though we, were, we had little, uh, there were people who had even much less. I assume that a lot of people who live in poverty are dealing with stress and maybe depression because it's very hard to see the the way out, uh, the bright future. How how were you affected by your circumstances? Um, you know, when I was growing up, I was not even aware that we were poor, you know. I, I, I just grew up very very happy with the situation that I was born in. Um, but as I was becoming uh, a teenager, you know, like going to high school is when I started noticing that, you know, I have this friend of mine that comes from the best part of town. Uh, you know, they have a fridge. We didn't even have a fridge. They have a fridge full of food and things. Their father has several cars. Um, you know, and, and so just seeing all of that, I started being aware that I have to do something and I have to, I have to work harder. 
um, you know, so I, I was not as stressed as such, but I saw the stress in the adults in my life, you know. Um, and, you know, I also saw stress when, when certain things happened, you know, in my life. For example, my mother was our breadwinner, you know. She, even though my father is still alive, he lived mostly with the first wife. So one day my mother had a, a road accident, a very grisly uh, car accident involving the bus she was in and a trailer that, you know, uh, had a head-on collision. And so everybody in that accident died. Many people, almost almost 100 people at that day and scene of the accident Luckily for my mom, her brother was working at the mortuary where all these dead people were taken. So her brother and my mom had actually helped that brother of hers get that job. So her brother just spent more time with her body examining it. And he realized that she was still, her pulse was still pounding. And so she was moved to the ICU and she stayed there for very many weeks. During this time is when I realized that, uh, you know, our relatives wanted the things that we had in our house, the material things. So while my mom was hospitalized, people knew that she was going to die. Nobody knew that she would ever, ever survive. So my uncles came and took everything in our house and my siblings were distributed to different relatives' houses. And, you know, my, I have one of my sisters called Violet who was fighting these people physically, trying to stop them from taking our things, but she was too little for them. So after they took most of the things, you know, Violet, my sister insisted that we stay where we were. And um, when my mom left the hospital, we just began everything all over again. But it just taught me that, you know, these people are taking everything not because they're thieves or because they're greedy, but because they see it and they want it, but they don't know how to get it. And they, they've not trained themselves to, to get what they want. Write a review, and then you can share it. With the world, in any social media platform. And then your friends see it, and you can share and discover new shows together. This is Steph, instigator of Pod Rev Day, Podcast Review Day. And I'm Andy from Inspired Money. And I'm Arielle of Earbuds Podcast Collective and CastBox. We're here to tell you everything you need to know about Pod Rev Day. Which is on the 8th of every month, of every year, of every century, of every... You get it. We are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag Pod Rev Day Podcast Review Day. Because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives. And you can do that through reviews. Even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good. Does it? It lets you know that people are at least listening. Don't be a passive podcast listener. Write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode. And to participate, you just need to do one review. And we'll see you every eighth of the month. Pod Rev Day. Because podcasters deserve to hear it. Hashtag Pod Rev Day. P-O-D-R-E-V-D-A-Y.
Before we go back to Simon's story, let me remind you that the I Bounce Back podcast is available on all major podcasting platforms. If you like, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Every second Wednesday, we will bring you some inspiring and uplifting stories. Today's guest is Simon Okello, who just before a break was telling about his life in one of the biggest slums in Kenya. Despite very challenging circumstances, he found the way out. Boxing helped him to leave the slum. The university I went to was uh, a business school run by the Kenya Railway Corporation. I learned about this university at the boxing gym. Uh, some of the boxers at that gym were being sponsored by railway corporation that owned that gym. So they were telling us that they're going to camp at this college before they go to play for the Kenya Olympic team. So it drew my attention and I always kept an eye out for what's going on in that college. And one day I saw an advert on the newspaper that there was an intake that they were they were looking for new students. So I saw this advert and took it to the coach at the gym. And he said, if you're interested, I can, you know, forward your name to the school and let them know that you're a boxer at this gym. And then I let my mom know that the coach is forwarding my name. What can we do, you know? So my mom raised a little money and the boxing gym raised some money. And before I knew it, I was in college, you know? Um, and when I was there, you know, I, I helped reopen the boxing gym at the college. It had been closed for many years. So because I had been given the opportunity through my boxing gym, you know, I went there and started uh, a, a gym at the college again. And uh, we invited other boxers from within the community in Nairobi that were training at that college with us. But yeah, so not, that's... Yeah, you did not become... Uh professional boxer you chose another path exactly so you know for me boxing just led me to music again you know uh, at the gym where i was doing boxing is where i started connecting to djs in nairobi and i just expanded my network and when i finished my time in nairobi i came back to kisumu with new connections like you know at the time i came back to kisumu Many people didn't even have computers, and I came back with an old computer, so I was, you know, reproducing music for DJs. So I was getting music from Nairobi, bringing it to Kisumu, and I started my own business, and also I started a DJ business. Uh, you know, through that, I started doing, um, you know, NDR parties for the CDC. They have a big operation in Kisumu. Uh, so... As I connected to the international community in my hometown, you know, uh, through the orphanage home that my mother was running, uh, you know, I eventually got the opportunity to work in about six countries in Africa because, you know, I was given a project at the orphanage home that I did very well. And the person who was leading the organization that was funding that project asked me if I could do that in South Sudan. So I went to South Sudan. Uh, you know, for two, about two to three years, you know, working there for about a month to three months every time I went. Then I went to Malawi, Liberia, Ghana, 
uh, and I worked in Tanzania and Uganda as well. And you, in one of your work trips, you met your future wife, your current wife. That is correct. That is correct. Yes. And that made um, you move to the States later. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> so let's jump to the time when you moved to the States. Uh, what kind of impression does this country give to you? I assume, you know, being a kid coming from a slum and then moving to the States, you had to go through cultural shock. Well, you know, um, before I came to the U.S., I had a lot of connections with people who are already in the U.S. because of because of the international community that uh, I was interacting with through the work I was doing at the orphanage and also my DJing. Um, so when I came to the U.S., I, I, you know, I have to say that my mind was um, so focused on the work that I didn't really, I didn't really pay attention to, um, you know, the culture shock. I was, the first time I came to the U.S. was in 2009 and I came to do a fundraising trip in eight different states. So I was on a very tight schedule uh, and I was just with a closed group of people. Um, you know, what I would say was the culture shock during the first time was the infrastructure, the roads and how everything was very organized, you know, uh, and how everybody obeyed the laws, you know. Uh, then when I moved here officially in 2010, the biggest culture shock for me was was the abundance of things you know for example if i went to the the supermarket to buy you know uh, things for the house for example if you want to get cereal you know um, you get like 16 or 20 different kinds of cereal you get confused you don't know what to choose if you want chicken you get you know all in like 50 kinds of options so so I just felt that there was a lot of wastage and a lot of abundance that was not, uh, you know, well appreciated. And I also felt that, you know, people here had so much, but they didn't see it because it, they were swimming in abundance, but they didn't appreciate it because everybody's on a schedule. Go to work, you know, go to school, uh, you know, everything is on a schedule and and everybody is living a more stressed life than in Africa, actually. <laughs> yeah. But after moving to the U.S., you did not forget your roots and you stayed connected to your roots. You continued working for your community. You established your organization, One Vibe. Um, can you tell a, a little bit about it and why was it important for you to carry on uh, this work? You know, you can, you, can, you can never run away from yourself, you know. No matter how far away you go from home, it is still home. And uh, before I moved to the U.S., I was already committed to my community, and I'm a man of my words. You know, once I say, I think I can do this, this is necessary for my community, and this is my life mission. Even if I went to Saudi Arabia, even if I went to Israel, even if I went to the moon, I would still make sure that I do what I said, especially because I saw how impactful my mom's work in our community was. Um, so my commitment was that no matter where I go, 
I came up with a formula where within the first two minutes of meeting somebody new, I would tell them about one vibe and what my vision is in this life, you know. So quickly, I built a network of, of people that supported this vision. And, um, you know, I, I, I began working with well-known artists, uh, like Grammy Award-winning artists here in Seattle, like Mark Lemo and Ryan Lewis. And I connected with, well, you know, well-known organizations and began organizing big festivals and, um, you know, monthly dinners and producing documentaries and using all these uh, proceeds from all these events to continue uh, running the education, music and art program in Kenya, which is the primary thing that we do in Kenya, you know. Um, so the whole of home that was started by my mother and our entire home where I grew up is now the place where we have, you know, music classes, recording studio, film production, dance classes, every day of the week. So you turned orphanages into sort of creative hubs. Uh, That's exactly correct. How many kids are, or like young people are involved into these projects? So far we've served over 1,200 uh, since 2013. Uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe around uh, 15 to 30 people attend our programs and then we have peak seasons uh, like april august and december when schools are closed we have a higher number of uh, participants but we also have a very big online uh, reach you know we have a big uh, youtube um, channel called one vibe tv where we put most of our videos uh, you know we have over 3000 subscribers there and we have over 12 million digital impressions on the internet like between our websites and social media you know every year we reach about 12 million people so our goal is to create uh, you know our own tv station down the road and our own radio station just online initially through the internet so you know so that we can become a respected content creation organization in Africa so that, you know, communities that are, that have orphanages like us can start creating content and become places that are respected and uh, where jobs are created, where, where communities thrive instead of, of suffering and violence. That's a beautiful idea. And you, you've talked about uh, the fact that um, music has played an important role in your life. And also you chose to create these creative hubs uh, within orphanages. Why did you choose art? Why do you think it's important for kids to learn arts and be involved into these creative processes? So art is, is quite important. You know, there are... Even now, as we are struggling with the coronavirus pandemic, when you go online, you find that one of the ways that people are coping with this uh, quarantine is through music. Many well-known musicians are going online and doing live streams. Um, 
during the reason why we center art and music in our work is because you know art has a healing power and art uh, as a unifying power the healing side of it is that uh, it allows people to tell their story in ways that they can't tell otherwise you know um you can express yourself in very deep ways through music or through uh, a painting um and so we 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 want to be a resource where people that have been traumatized through violence or through the effects of being in poverty and the depression and the stress an outlet that can replace the violence is music you know we have young people that are part of our program that before they joined our program they were killing people with guns but now they're playing guitar they go to the studio they record so they take that negative energy into music and it becomes positive energy the unifying factor is that you know one vibe was formally started in Kenya in 2008 right after the post election violence where many tribes in Kenya were killing each other because of a disputed election so i had organized a, fe- a festival that brought about 2000 people together right after the the violence you know uh, so imagine after this lockdown is cleared and people can now go back to work the first festival is organized by one vibe that is what happened in 2008 and you know people came together in a very peaceful way and people were very inspired by what we did so people kept asking us to do it again because there was that power that brought people together yeah well let's hope that uh, your organization will be able to organize another festival when everything is over and uh, unite physically people together um, i know of course your example um definitely gives hope to children and young people uh but do you know how many people actually succeed to leave poverty i i have to say that i don't know the exact uh stats what the statistics say but i have to also say that the statistics are probably wrong because collecting that type of data uh globally is almost impossible you know and uh, poverty is worsening right now if you look at the even you know there's this popular saying that the top 1% you know the top 1% are the richest people in the world and millions of people uh are suffering in poverty so if you think about that you know for example bill gates and jeff bezos they live like 10 minutes from where i live you know and these are the amongst the top 5 richest people in the world and Yesterday I was reading a news article that while people are all suffering Jeff Bezos is getting richer during this pandemic because Amazon is 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 one of the essential companies that need that has to distribute goods to people. So while the rich are becoming richer the poor are becoming poorer, you know, in Kenya right now the prices of 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 goods are are more expensive than they were when i was growing up milk is more expensive bread is more expensive you know uh, life is more difficult now than when i was growing up so 
to me, that is an indication that uh, there are more poor people and there are, the chances of somebody leaving the slum is harder now than it was for me. The only thing that can make it easier is if somebody has access to the internet and they're, they're savvy enough to, to use their, their skills to get themselves not literally out of the slum, but socioeconomically out of the slum. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And what would you say, your, your story is definitely a success story, but what would you say, what made it possible? Was it your perseverance or were you just lucky on, you know, on the right time at the right place? I honestly think perseverance, being lucky, and also being extremely aggressive and persistent and not taking it personally. I never took being poor personally and blamed my mother and myself for being in a bad situation. I just always felt that I'm an important human being and I need to contribute. So I always just focused, how can I contribute to this moment, this situation? Um, so that takes away the idea of poverty from your thinking. The moment you can you can take away the idea that I'm poor, I'm suffering, and you start, uh, you know, you know, uh, everything starts with you and in your heart. Whatever you think you are is what you become. So I just chose to think that I am a great person, I'm a great human being, I can help many people, uh, and I can be a great leader, and that's what I'm becoming. I'm not there yet. Uh, and what I can say is whoever believes that they are amazing and they can, they, they have a vision, a clear vision, and they want to get there, as long as they insist, they persist, and they stay consistent, and they have the discipline. You know, discipline allows you to stay healthy and focused and sustain relationships that brings your vision to life. That is what has made it possible for me to be where I am today. That's a very nice advice for people who, are, who might be struggling right now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, since we are coming to the end, I want to give you a task that I normally give to my guests. Uh, I want to say three incomplete sentences and I want you to complete them. Okay. So the first one is... My biggest turning point in life was? Uh, my biggest turning point in life was when I realized that I can do anything that I choose to do in this world as long as I'm willing to work hard for it and as long as I'm willing not to give, give up and be distracted by any situation. Uh, I always felt that I'm willing to die for this mission to liberate my community. I remember one time, you know, we were going through a difficult time with my family and my sister that I mentioned earlier, Violet, was one of the people that were in a meeting, a very critical meeting. And, you know, I was, you know, we were having a very heated conversation and I told them, I'm willing to die for this. So... She was like, you cannot die for something. I told her, if, for me, I'm willing to die for this. That's why I'm committing today to do this for the rest of my life. The moment you're willing to die for something, then it is something worth living for. 
So that is that was my realization when I felt that am I willing to die for this work? And when I gave myself the answer of yes, then I said, okay, this is now my mission. Uh, the second sentence would be one thing I would tell to my younger self. One thing I would tell to my younger self is is that um, you know there are there are every day never comes like whenever you have an experience and an opportunity as a young person you think it's that's the way things are always going to be so there are moments that i i experienced in the course of my life that i wish i was enjoying them now but i can't because i have other things to focus on there are some relationships that i had in my life that i could have managed differently but you know i can't i can't control them anymore so i just have to stay focused but you know the only message to my younger self is that enjoy the moment and choose because the time that is there to be spent is 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 yours whether you choose to sleep or you choose to go for a run or you choose to work or you choose to do something terrible to somebody else those are things that are all okay they all have consequences but it's up to you to choose what do you want to spend this precious time that we have in this world doing and so to my younger self it's just to enjoy that moment and be sure about the the things that um you know you're doing and the time that you're spending on them and know that it will never come back again oh that's very nice and the last one is my next big challenge is ah i want you to send me all these questions afterwards <laughs> <laughs> my next big challenge is to build a website um known as one vibe tv and this um this is like one of three current challenges i'm working on so i've realized that one vibe is generating a lot of content and we want to focus on creating a platform where we can help filmmakers all over africa put their content in a place that is better than youtube in a place that locally in their community people can see their work and people can interact with their work and small businesses in their community can invest in their work um my hope is that we can have community cinemas where we have outdoor screening of local content for the local community my goal is for us to become a resource for other people um that's at a one vibe level at a personal level you know i'm currently writing my own memoir so i'm i'm, I'm in the process of finishing a photo book for one vibe it's called um rooted in love this will be my first book that i author uh it's about the work i've been doing with one vibe and photos taken in the last 13 to 14 years um but after that i'm writing a memoir i'm 50% done with the memoir um you know those are just some of the current challenges that i have amazing. in front of me <laughs> yeah amazing thank you so much it was very very interesting to hear you 
It was a story of Simon Oleko, who currently runs one VIBE organization in African countries. With his work, he aims to help children from slums to find peace in their arts and find a way out from the slums, just like Simon did more than 10 years ago. For more information about Simon, visit ibounceback.net. There you can find our blog posts and also podcast episodes. When it happened and I found out that I was positive, when I was diagnosed with HIV, it just felt absurd because I really never, you know, it's not like I know people that have this. I don't know anyone. There's no friends. There's no family. There's no classmates. There's no other women that I know that have this. So it felt absurd. That's the word I always use. And so I just couldn't keep that a secret. It was more like, can you believe this? I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe this happened to me. Like, this was like the one thing that I thought would never happen to me. And it did. Tune in to our podcast in two weeks on July 29th and listen to another inspiring story. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe and keep going. Bye.